Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Father, we thank you for our fellowship this morning. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we just ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear your word this morning, that you would take the words that I speak and minister to our hearts as only you and the Holy Spirit can do. We pray, Father, that you teach us and give us wisdom, and for all that you do, we'll praise you in Christ's name. We'll quickly, in review, for some that may not have been here for the first three messages on this, Paul had this vision of a Macedonian man urging him to come over to Macedonia to help us back in Acts chapter 7 or 16. So Paul embarked on a journey to that region with uh, Silas and Timothy, and he concluded that, that God had called him to preach the gospel there in Acts chapter 16, verse 10. They traveled first to Philippi, or as we say in West Virginia, Philippi, uh, in Acts chapter 16, before proceeding to Thessalonica. And you know what happened there. You're familiar with the story about Paul and Silas got beaten for, for preaching the gospel, and they got put in jail. And while they were in jail, they were rejoicing and singing praises and thanking God that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And you know the story how the jail burst open and ended up the, the prisoners... Uh, could have escaped but didn't, and the prison guard's family got saved and baptized. So Paul went on and traveled uh, then to Thessalonica, which was, let me refresh your memory on it, it was the capital of Macedonia, which was a Roman province in northern Greek. It had a population of over 100,000 people, and it was a powerful commercial site because it was on a natural harbor, and it was also on an east-west highway, a Roman highway, called the uh, Via Ignatia. And there was a lot of different religions here. And in fact, that time of, uh, in that time in history, they loved to debate different philosophies and theologies. And so it was, there was a lot of polytheistic religions there. They worshipped the Roman gods, the Greek gods, um, all kinds of different crazy religions. But there was also a sizable uh, uh, number of monotheistic Jews in the area. In Acts chapter 17, Luke recounts Paul's visit to the city. He entered the synagogue there and he preached for three days. Uh, he reasoned with them from the scriptures and told them about Christ. And a lot of the powerful, devout Greeks uh, were converted as well as the women. But there was a band of jealous Jews who formed a mob and they wanted to drag Paul and Silas before the um, the before the leaders of the area, but um, they formed this mob because they couldn't find Paul. They took the guy he was living with, who was his host, who was Jason. They took him and dragged him out uh, before the authorities and charged them with sedition. And they said, "These men that have turned the world upside down have come here, and they're preaching against Caesar. They're preaching another king. They're preaching." Jesus. And so, narrowly escaping by night, Paul and his associates then journeyed to Berea, where Luke notes that the Jews were more tolerable and uh, more noble people. Later on, Paul moved on and went into Athens. His next visit was then to um, Corinth. And he stayed in Corinth for about 18 months. Paul couldn't return. He was hindered there um, because he said Satan hindered him. The the book of Thessalonians was written around 50, 51 A.D. It's his, probably his second oldest book, earliest book, only followed uh, by Galatians. 
In the previous chapters now, Paul has defended his ministry and defended the gospel. He's in, in defended the integrity of him and Paul and Sil, uh, Timothy as missionaries from God. And then having defended that, he goes on to defend why he's been absent from them and and rejoices from the news that he had sent Timothy to check on the church to see how it was doing, and he had gotten a good report, and, and he shares that with the church. And he tells the church they will be his proud reward when we stand before the Lord Jesus. He calls the church his pride and joy. But remember, this church had some problems. There was some sexual immorality. There was some people who were mooching off the better-to-do Christians who wouldn't work. And so, it, But Paul doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the good. He encourages them to walk worthy of, of the gospel. And he teaches them that Christian faith consists of three parts. Personal relationship with Jesus, sound doctrine, and a changed life. So now let's look at chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. That finally then doesn't mean it's the end of the book. It's merely a transition. Paul typically divides uh, his epistles into two parts. Usually there's a doctrinal part and then a practical segment. But this book is divided a little differently. It's got a personal historical part and then a practical. Paul is using the word finally here to denote a transition. He's been talking about their history, how they came from worshiping false gods, how they were involved in all this uh, ungodly stuff, and that how they have changed uh, to, to follow Christ. So it doesn't denote the end of the book, but a transition. He shared their history with them, and now he wants to talk to them about their Christian walk and tell them what God's standard for holy living is. The next part, he says, we urge and exhort. Paul continues the practice of encouraging Christ-like behavior through encouragement and exhortation rather than just giving point-blank commands. He does both at times. Sometimes he will give a straight command, but he likes to exhort and encourage. We see in verse 2 he's also giving them those commandments and instruction, but he doesn't just choose one method. He likes two methods of communication. And we remember in the previous chapter where Paul pleaded with them, he came alongside them and pleaded with them like a father would his own children. And from that we learn that Paul really cared for these people. He loved them. His concern for them was genuine and from the heart. The next phrase there says that you should abound more and more. Christianity is not a one-shot good deal. It is not a get your fire pants to escape hell and then just go live your life as you please. We need to continue to grow. And if we aren't continuing to grow, guess what? We're probably sliding back. You know, I kind of think of it as like martial arts. You have people who dabble in it, but they never really get very good in it. But the people who spend a lifetime studying it, practicing it, exercising it, those are the ones who become the masters. And that's kind of like the Christian walk. We never stop learning. We never stop training. We continue to grow and grow in the Lord. And that's what Paul says here, that you should abound more and more. That's a healthy Christian lifestyle. Notice uh, 
he says, as you ought to walk and please God. Walk's often a word that's used in the Bible to describe the believer's life as well as our relationship with the Lord. It shows us that life should be one of action. I don't know about you, but when I walk, I can't walk slow. I have to walk fast. If I go with my wife somewhere to the mall or somewhere, she's always saying, where are you going? We're not going to a fire. I have... I have to walk fast. You know, there's a destination. I have to get to it. I know where I'm going, and I got to go. Well, that's kind of the way the Christian life is to be walked. We have a, we're on a journey. We have a destination. We have a purpose. We should be a people of action, full of purpose, with a clear direction. Next, Paul says, and to please God. The first part of that phrase shows actions, our behavior. The second part focuses on our motives. Pleasing God should be our primary motive in all that we do. We should choose our careers. We should manage our money. We should choose uh, how we raise our children. We should choose our wedding partner, and we should have a wedding that pleases God. Everything, we should, everything that we do should be directed by that light. We should, everything we should, our actions should please God and our motives. Next, Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness." Notice he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, when we hear that word sanctification, we're kind of like the little boy whose dad was a pastor, and he'd heard all those big words like condemnation, reconciliation, justification, sanctification. He'd heard all those big words. So one morning in Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher said, who can tell me what procrastination means? Well, little Johnny raised his hand. So the Sunday school teacher called on him. She said, okay, little Johnny. He goes, well, I don't really know what it means, but I know our church believes in it. And that's kind of how we are about sanctification. We've heard that word, but we just really don't quite have an understanding of what it means. Well, Paul says this is the will of God. It's God's plan for us to be sanctified. Now, there's a lot of different doctrines. Some churches teach that it's a second work of grace, and some of our Pentecostal brothers say it's significant because it's only revealed when you have special spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues or prophecy or those kind of things. Our Methodist brothers just call it sanctification, being surrendered to the Holy Spirit. But many of us uh, uh, don't have a clear understanding of what it means. Simply put, it just means that we are set aside for a special purpose. If you'll remember in the, in the Old Testament, when the Jews were practicing sacrifices to God, they had these goblets and implements and tools that they used in worshiping God. And those items were sanctified, set apart, simply put, set apart. They were used for nothing else, only for the purpose of worshiping God. Remember in, in the, the book of Daniel how that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when he captured the Jews, he put those goblets and those utensils in a cabinet. And he didn't touch them because he knew they were sacred. They were sanctified. They were set apart for God's purposes. 
But then another king, he decided to get them out and party and drink out of them. And it didn't turn out so well for him, did it? So sanctified means to be dedicated to a special purpose. And Paul says this is God's will for us, that we will be set apart for a special purpose. The world today thinks that believers who preach fidelity and sexual purity are bigoted and judgmental, that we're out of touch with reality and living in the past. We don't accept progress. Maybe some would say that that is just our opinion. Well, it's fine if you want to live that way. Just keep it to yourself. Well, this wasn't Paul's opinion. It's the will of God. God's will in the following verses is very clear. He wants us to be holy, pure, and to follow his guidelines for the proper exercise of our sexual desires. The next phrase says that you abstain from sexual immorality. This principle was not given because the world was conservative or traditional at the time. Quite the opposite. Greek culture was decadent. Sexual immorality was in vogue. Divorce was rampant. Mistresses were commonplace. Slaves were bought and sold as concubines. Every kind of sexual perversion and practice was engaged in. They had temple prostitutes, homosexuality, Adultery were rampant. All those things were going on. For the most part, they weren't done in secret either. There was little shame. One of the root causes of was the religions of that era and that area. Temple cult prostitution was commonplace. Prostitution was considered a form of worship. This command did not stem from a culture's backwards views. Instead, it was Necessary because the people in the culture had fallen so far from God's original plan. Thessalonian believers grew up in this environment. They faced these temptations every day. But fallen culture was not an excuse to practice or excuse those kinds of sins. Even though it was commonplace around them, God warned them to be sanctified. He wanted them to be set apart from the evil around them. He wanted them to be different. Whereas the people around them would run toward these sins, God commanded them to run in the other direction. They were to abstain, to stay far away. Other verses like 2 Timothy 2.22 command us to flee like Joseph did. Remember when, when the king's wife made a pass at him. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The next part of that verse says that you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There are two possible interpretations of this verse. One is that his own vessel refers to one's spouse. In other words, a husband should cherish his marriage and show himself to be faithful at all times. The meaning would be similar to the verse in Hebrews 13.4, which commands us that the marriage bed should be held in honor by all. The second possible interpretation is that his own vessel refers to himself. In other words, a man should use his sexual capability in the way God intended Either way, husbands and wives are to be pure. Following God's standard is the honorable and holy thing to do. Those who follow God's way enjoy a rich plan that God has for them. True joy comes from obeying God's standard and waiting for his timing 
rather than fulfilling our desires outside of his guidelines. Verse 6 tells us that the reason the person who commits fornication actually defrauds his brother. In other words, it's robbing the future husband. When we have premarital sex with some girl that we don't marry, we're stealing from another brother that does eventually marry her. That's what's happening. He says no husband would willingly let someone take his wife and sleep with her, but that is what happens if a man sleeps with a woman and doesn't marry her. Fornication is inherently selfish action that robs everyone involved. It robs both parties who commit the act. Even in the end, if they get, end up getting married, there will be a lot of guilt and shame, which will cause problems in their marriage and their relationship and take away some of their joy. If they don't marry, the future spouses are being robbed. They've been robbed, making the offending parties thieves in addition to the act of fornication. And the Bible tells us the Lord is the avenger. He is the judge. He repays those who break his laws. You might think no one sees this, but God is watching. Verse 7, God has called us to purity. He does not want us to live the same way as we were before we're saved. Our lives should be transformed. Our minds should be transformed. Our hearts should be transformed. In verse 8, he says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. This abstinence and, and sex practiced only in, in, under the, uh, in marriage is God's idea. It's not man's idea. This is the message God has for all of us to, to obey today. We are human. We live in a fallen world. We need God's grace. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we refuse to change, we're rejecting God. If we refuse to repent, we are rejecting God. If we refuse to obey, we are rejecting God. He has given us his Holy Spirit to help us do battle in this issue. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it is, says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he warns us there, would you take the body of Christ, the temple of Christ, and join it with a prostitute? And he says, absolutely not. As I studied for this lesson, I thought about how the Thessalonians faced the same things that we face today and how our culture has rapidly changed from being influenced by Christian truth to what is known as secular humanism. You know, in their time, they hadn't heard the good news in the gospel, and they were practicing all these heathenistic hedonistic religions and uh, sexual immorality. But now we have heard the truth, and now it's like it's come. the pendulum has swung the other way, and we're seeing it in our culture all around us. Our culture is not a lot different from what the Thessalonians faced, is it? But secular humanism is behind it. Secularists are not content to live and let live, and we're seeing this every day in, in, in our lives. They're not satisfied with pluralism or the exchange of ideas. They seek to be, not to be equal, but to dominate. That which was at one time condemned must not simply be tolerated. It must be celebrated. And that which was one time celebrated uh, must be condemned. Only then will these crusaders see their vision of utopia come to pass. Their goal is the total capitulation of the culture to their point of view. Dissenting voices are shamed into either submission or silence. I read this week that Max Lucado, who's a, a great Christian writer and speaker, was shamed into writing 
an apology to the LBGTQ community for his past sermons on biblical marriage and family. In his letter, Max said, yes, we need to practice more love and humility, that we're all children of God. Well, that was good up to that point. I don't agree with Max. We're not all children of God. We're all created by God. But remember when Jesus confronted the religious leaders of the day, he said, you can't understand my words because you are of your father, the devil. So we're not all children of God. That's a little slip there. But the pressure is on. The Human Manifesto, the Humanist Manifesto was written in 1933 and then revised in 1972 by Edwin Wilson and Paul Kurtz. And many consider Paul Kurtz to be the father of secular humanism. The document denies supernaturalism in all of its forms, as you might expect. Here's a quote. Promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are illusionary and harmful. The human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces, and there is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. This is the driving force today behind all the changes in our culture. Progressivism, it may be called. Black Lives Matter, who admits that their leaders are trained Marxists, and Marxists are, guess what? Secular humanists. Antifa. All these calls you hear by the talking heads for equity and equality. Uh, the driving force behind all that is Marxism. It's built on humanism and atheism. It's the new religion of the day. And some believers are deceived into thinking that some of it sounds Christian because they take parts of the Bible about love and compassion and kindness to spread their message. But they leave out the biblical view of marriage the biblical view of family, our consecration and dedication to God. And they say that what we teach this morning and what Paul is teaching in Thessalonians, it's just antiquated. It's too condemning. It's too, you know, it's just outdated. Marxism and socialism is anti-God because it's based on atheistic, secular humanism. They want to destroy the biblical view of the family and marriage and sex. That's their goal. And in so doing, they want to destroy the United States because it was built by people of faith. They want to bring down our nation. There are calls today for evangelicals to remake Christianity into a more inclusive religion. Remember how Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the path to eternal life? Well, there are widespread efforts today to widen the path, to take down the gate, I guess, and they affirm the salvation of many well-meaning people of other religions. Remember, Opa said, there's not just one way to God. There's all kinds of ways to God. That's a lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man enters into to the Father but by me. There's only one way. But there's calls today to just accept everybody. I see these people with the coexist bumper sticker on their car, and I hope you don't have one because I don't want to pick on you. But, you know, when I see that, I think, yeah, if you're a Christian, let's see you co coexist with a radical Muslim. I'm sure he's going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya with you. <laughs> okay? But the so-called progressive Christians advance their causes under the banner of love and compassion 
But the hard truths of Christianity are either redefined or ignored. A recent news service article carried this headline, Church of Canada may disappear by 2040. The report stated there will be neither attendees or givers in the Anglican Church in Canada by 2040. The church is in free fall financially and numerically, and if the trend continues, it will vanish. Now, who's responsible for this? Well, decades ago, the major branches of the Anglican Church turned from the gospel to social justice issues to become more acceptable to the mainstream culture. Its leaders were too sophisticated to believe in the miracles of the Bible. You know, things like healing, the resurrection of Jesus. So they had to be reinterpreted to fit the mindset of the people of the 20th and 21st century. Then being absorbed by the culture, they had nothing of eternal value or transcendent to give to it to offer its members. So apparently it has little reason to survive. But one rector, in response to this gloomy report, took solace from a former Archbishop of Canterbury who once said, the church is not ours to save. The rector said, we're only to be good stewards of what has been given us. God will do what God will do. On one level, that's completely true. Jesus established the church 2,000 years ago, and it is his to save. I totally believe in the sovereignty of God. And that only he can save the church. You see, I'm not worried about saving America anymore. I'm worried about saving the church. But this, there is this one thing, and this is critical. We Christians play a role in the survival and the impact of the church. Consider what Jesus wrote in Revelations chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus. He commended their commitment to truth, their works, their endurance. Then he said, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up. For my name's sake, for you have not grown weary. That's a great report, isn't it? Good works, good doctrine, resisting the pressures of the culture. Man, that's, that's really great, isn't it? But then Jesus drops this bomb. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Notice that the lampstand was conditioned on their repentance. The church wasn't theirs to save, yet its continuation was dependent upon their repentance. Return to their first love. Do good deeds. And apparently... The church of Ephesus failed to do those things because there hasn't been a church in Ephesus in hundreds of years, in centuries. Which brings me to some disturbing news about our church today. Charisma reported in a national survey that 64% of Christian men who identify as born again view pornography monthly. 44% of them view it at worst in at least in the last 90 days. And 18% of Christian men admit to being addicted to pornography, and another 9% think they might be. 70% of the women who get abortions identify as Christians. 40% are frequent churchgoers. 
According to Human Life International, an international pro-life group, 60% of those entering their first marriage in the United States are already cohabitating. According to the U.S. Census Bureau estimates, 18 million Americans now cohabitate. Of those ages 18 to 24, cohabitation is now more prevalent than living with a spouse. 9% live with an unmarried partner, while only 7% live with a spouse. Looking next to the 25 and 34-year-old age group, a full 15% choose to live together without marrying, an increase of 3% in the last 10 years. According to the Pew Research Center, even more alarming are over 50-year-olds. Cohabitators ages 50 and older represent about 23% of all cohabitating adults since 2016. Since 2007, the number of cohabitating adults ages 50 grew by 75%. Here's some scriptures to look at. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or um, impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And Titus chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Let's look at verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing." Notice that Paul commends them again. He encourages them at the same time. And he also reminds them to increase more and more. There's that thing, you know, you can't sit still. It's not a place where I'm graduated and I'm done. But that you continue to increase more and more. We can't sit on our blessed assurance, as the old saying goes. <laughs> We've got to keep moving. This is his plan. We've been watching The Mandalorian and... Uh, you know what he always, what the Mandalorian always says? This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Continue to grow. Continue to learn. This is his plan. Continue to be set apart for him and have a quiet life because you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You have been bought with a price. Let's pray. So let's stand this morning.
Our Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus for mercy and grace. Teach us to seek your face on behalf of our church, our communities, our country. Help us to be agents of hope and reconciliation in a time of strife and conflict. Cause us to see our great need of repentance and wisdom. We know this is a spiritual battle that we're engaged in. That heavenly forces are engaged in conflict between good and evil. We acknowledge our dependence upon you. Like Jehoshaphat, we confess we're powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. We don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. When Jehoshaphat fasted and prayed, you told him, don't be afraid. The battle is not yours. The battle is mine. And so the people sang praises and worshipped you. And you won the battle. They were delivered. Help us, Lord, to face the future with optimism, with joy, because we are yours. We belong to you. We were created for this time. It is no surprise that all this is happening and that we're here. Because you see the end from the beginning. Father, help us to fulfill what you've called us to do because you created us for this time. May your church unite in singing your praises and giving thanks to your name. Let us not be overwhelmed with the sins of others, Lord, but let us be overwhelmed by our own sins, our own needs, our own failures. Let us listen to your voice and learn and stand with confidence to face the challenges before us. Father, we just ask your blessing on everyone in this building this morning. Bless our families. Save our lost loved ones. We lift them up to you today. And Father, help us to walk in a way that those that are outside the church will say, Hey, there's something going on there. That guy's got something. That girl's got something. That they would desire that. Lord, we thank you for this service, for the opportunity to be in your house and be with your people today. Bless us now as we go our separate ways. And for all that you do, we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name.